3: We're hearing a lot of heated exchanges on some topics in this presidential
2: election. To be president of this country, you need tremendous stamina. You've
4: taken business bankruptcy six times.
0: I don't mind releasing. I'm under a routine audit. And as soon as the audit's finished, it'll be released. today's headline, it's 30 emails Benghazi hidden.
3: What's noteworthy is what's missing.
4: Stem cell policy, opiate addiction, climate change energy policy, NIH funding, water scarcity, space travel, and just basic research. We're not
3: hearing about science and technology issues that depend on federal funding and regulation and that bear on the quality of our lives. Now, you can say, okay, you guys produce a science show, so of course you're interested in science issues. But it's not just us. There is broad support for science by the public who recognize its importance. So why aren't the politicians discussing science? I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide angle view on science and technology, and we also devote one episode a month to critical thinking skeptic check. In this skeptic check, if there's consensus among the public that science is important, that some of our biggest challenges in national security, healthcare, education, and energy production have science and technology components, well, why are we not hearing about that and instead hearing this?
5: You know, she gained a massive amount of weight. It was a real problem.
4: You could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. It's skeptic check, science, and the election.
3: Science and technology are intertwined with politics. Those who are elected to office hold hearings, appoint advisors, and determine budgetary priorities for science. We've heard a little bit in the current campaign about climate change, health issues, and cyber attacks, but many important issues are simply not addressed.
4: Here's what's at least partly dependent on government funding, and in some cases, government regulation. The EPA, the NIH, biomedical research, the development of energy initiatives combating pandemics like Zika, space exploration, and just plain basic research. Yet there is a lack of meaningful discussion about the candidates' policies or priorities, even though how the next administration sets them will have a significant, even transformative, impact on people's lives.
3: So why are politicians so chary about talking about these major, highly important topics? Why is science not on the agenda for those on the podium?
4: There's one area of research we have heard a lot about in this election, and that's forecasting who's ahead and who might win. So I guess the statisticians are happy.
6: Well, let's go to the electoral map. Our current electoral map has Hillary Clinton favored to win. Donald Trump now, if you look at the
0: real clear politics poll average, you've got Trump at about two points.
1: Right, and two points means it's a
6: tie.
5: Statistically,
1: it's
6: a tie. Statistically,
0: a tie, right. And there
6: have been hundreds of Trump versus Clinton polls over the past year. So let's take a look at all of that polling data aggregated into a single graph.
3: But when science advocate Sean Otto imagines his ideal presidential debate, the moderator's questions would go something like this. How will your policies ensure that America remains at the cutting edge of innovation?
4: What's your position on embryonic stem cell research? What steps will you take to protect biological diversity?
3: Measles is resurgent due to declining rates of vaccination. How will your administration deal with this? What efforts will you take to improve the health of our oceans?
4: How aggressively would your administration address climate change? Sean Otto would like to have those questions and more posed to the candidates, but he is going a step further further. His organization is calling for a presidential debate devoted to issues in science and technology. Imagine that, a debate between the candidates solely on science, technology, and related policy issues.
3: Sean Otto is the co-founder of ScienceDebate.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit that includes thousands of scientists as members. It has been advocating for such a debate and has done so since 2008.
4: Every four years, science debate members and leaders of science organizations sift through questions crowdsourced from the general public, and they choose which are the most important and directly impacted by public policy. Then they ask the candidates to respond to them online, at a minimum. It's a game of 20 questions, only it's not a game. Sean, you
3: asked all four candidates to submit written responses to the 20 questions you put online as selected by sciencedebate.org. Did the candidates do so? And were you satisfied with their answers?
2: You know, they could have been more specific, but the answers do give a pretty good window into their thinking and the relative role of evidence or ideology in their thought processes. So what was your
3: intent, really? Was it to simply get them to respond at all? Did Did you also you know, look over the responses and critique uh, their level of understanding of the science? Or the validity of what they were saying. I mean, were you testing their knowledge of science issues, or simply seeing whether they considered science worthy of their time?
2: It's both, really. There are two real important aspects to this discussion. The first is, what is the role that they give to evidence in their decision-making process? Because it's evidence, generally evidence from science, that's the surest, fairest basis for public policy. And next, we want to know what is the relative level of knowledge that they have on these issues. These are profound issues. that are affecting every voter's life. And it's pretty important that we start discussing them in our public dialogue. This is not the
3: first debate in which you wanted to engage the candidates in science. In 2008, Barack Obama and John McCain participated in your online forum, as did Mitt Romney in 2012. Is this election cycle different in terms of willingness to respond, or is it pretty much the same?
2: This time around, we we did expand it to include Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, the Libertarian and Green Party candidates. So that is something new. And I think that we have had a relatively good track record over the past three cycles now. So candidates are willing to participate. We have still not been able to convince them, though, to attend a televised presidential science debate, which is the ultimate goal, because that's where you can really get into their thought processes on these topics.
3: Well, when you say a televised science debate, do you mean science questions incorporated in the debates that are actually already scheduled, or you want a separate debate just about science topics?
2: You know, science topics now influence voters' lives at least as much as the economic policy or the foreign policy that are generally themes of debates. There are so many different issues that are affecting Every voter that are affecting every aspect of life on the planet, that taken collectively, they really do deserve a discussion of their own. And the thing about it is is that science is now accelerating so quickly that a lot of these issues can get away from us if we don't start talking about them.
3: In the first debate this year, science was included. Well, some science. Climate change was mentioned. But mainly there was a back and forth about whether Donald Trump thought it was a hoax. There was mention of clean energy, too and a volley back and forth about how to protect
2: against cyber attack. Was that enough science in your opinion? No, that was just scratching at the surface of it. In fact, we didn't really get into any details about any kind of policy prescriptions uh, for dealing with these issues. They were just touching on the very tips of the topic. I mean, I don't think that Donald Trump actually even used the word cybersecurity. I think he called it the cyber. In one of the 2012
3: debates, CNN had a chance to ask President Obama and Mitt Romney a question about climate change, but he skipped it. He preferred a question on the economy. And it was the first time since 1988, if I'm not mistaken, that the climate went unmentioned. Why is climate change, which is not only a science subject, but one with major implications for security, economics, you know, it seems to be fading as a debate issue rather than gaining more prominence,
2: or is that not true? No, that is true. In fact, another good example is the Republicans and the Democrats both held a debate within one week of the conclusion of the Paris Climate Accord. And this was a massive international agreement where 195 countries came together and began to forge an economic and environmental treaty system to begin to take the world off of carbon. And yet, in the week following, in each of those debates, neither journalist moderating either debate asked a single question about it. So, it's really kind of an issue in our media, particularly in the political media. Well, where does the problem lie? Because you've cited
3: a poll that says that 91% of Democrats and 88% of Republicans want the candidates to debate science. So, you know, what's the problem here? I mean, where's this resistance coming from? It's as if science has cooties. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I've talked to news directors, and I've talked to editors about this problem, and a couple of things are going on. One is that they say climate change gets poor ratings because people find it depressing. Now, I don't think that that really is a good answer for not including a question in a debate, because there's a lot of other issues there that uh, are very interesting. And I think that voters actually want to hear candidates talk about this because they want them to begin to tackle the problem. But there's a broader issue here that That people in the media, generally, their last exposure to science was probably high school chemistry, and they didn't like it very much. And they went into the humanities, and they wound up either in politics or in journalism. And they assume that the rest of the public is as disinterested as they are. And our polling shows that that's just not true. But you've made a pitch to the moderators, have you not, to have them include more
3: science questions in their uh, grilling of the candidates?
2: We have, yes. And that's one thing that we've really been pushing this time around, is that moderators and journalists really have a duty as the fourth estate to inform voters about the candidates' positions on these issues. You know, in 1789, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to a friend, and he said, wherever the people are well-informed they can be trusted with their own government. And we live in a time now where science is impacting voters' lives so profoundly that it's very important that voters actually understand where candidates are on these topics in order for the democratic process to continue to work. And it's very important that candidates are held to account on this. And it really does make a profound positive impact. If you look back to 2008, Barack Obama was not particularly pro-science when he started out his campaign, but he did form a science committee to begin to tackle the questions that we asked, and he wound up appointing a lot of the early supporters of science debate to cabinet-level positions, and it arguably transformed his government. But there is this precedent when Al Gore
3: pushed issues of climate change uh, I think a lot of people saw him as some kind of nerdy
2: egghead, and I'm not sure it helped him to win over votes. Right. There was a comparison made at the time of who is a guy that you'd rather have a beer with and it was about making an emotional connection. But I do think that scientists, by and large, and politicians, uh, by and large, can be effective emotional communicators with people, especially on the issue of climate change. We've had a lot of experience on talking about this in the many years since then, and we've really learned what works. Much of what is
3: discussed in the election have science and technology components. I mean, security and healthcare, obviously, are dependent upon science and technology, but uh, can you give me another example of of something that's a big problem where science is actually critical to resolving the problem?
2: Well, there are so many of them. For instance, uh, our energy portfolio and how we're going to be tackling that. That's an enormous issue. The opioid crisis and the contribution of synthetic opioids to creating that and how we are going to tackle that. Our public health system and the emergence of superbugs uh, with the overuse of antibiotics in our food system. these All these issues are being driven by science and technology in one way or another, and yet they have enormous public policy implications.
3: Now, uh, sciencedebate.org is a nonprofit. Your criticism of the lack of scientific discussion in the election is nonpartisan, you're critical of the left as well as the right in terms of how they've taken on science issues. Uh, how so? Is that a matter of credibility, or do you think that there's a plenty of blame on all sides?
2: Well, there is blame on all sides, although it's a little bit different. I go into this quite considerably in my new book, The War on Science. Generally what happens is on the left, uh, when people get into anti-science, it's usually when they get into unfounded suspicions of hidden dangers to health or the environment ideas that say vaccines may cause autism or that wi-fi is somehow uh, dangerous or that cell phones may cause brain cancer or that fluoride is going to lower your iq none of these things are supported by science but the left generally worries about them and sometimes tries to regulate around them in the lack of that evidence On the right, generally, it's the opposite. It's when science is really supporting a point of view that suggests regulation, like the idea that burning fossil fuels is causing climate change. And on the right, it's the opposition to the regulation that is supported by evidence that's so dangerous. Are you optimistic that the candidates will discuss science before we go to the polls? I don't think that they're going to participate with us in a televised science debate. I wish that they would, but I've not been able to get any commitments from them. But I do think that they're going to continue to bring it up, and I hope that the moderators will do a better job of bringing up issues, particularly climate change, because that's the big gorilla science issue in the room that we've really simply got to tackle. And the public is very concerned about the direction of the country in a number of ways that are heavily influenced by science. But not talking about it leaves too much of an opening for people to move with anti-science agendas and public relations campaigns that uh, push perspectives on politicians that are not supported by the evidence. So getting politicians on the record talking about this is a way of helping to hold them accountable to evidence underlying their public policy positions. Sean Otto, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me.
4: Sean Otto is the co-founder of ScienceDebate.org and the author of The War on Science, Who's Waging It, Why It Matters, and What We Can Do About It.
3: Okay, one reason for why science is not discussed in this election is because the people in the media were last exposed to science in high school and they didn't like it. They were more interested in politics and and they assume the public is not interested in science either, which he also says is a wrong assumption. Sean Otto ended making the point that when scientific issues are not addressed publicly, the lack of discussion may be filled with ignorance or even with anti-science rhetoric. Next, a candidate who has donned the mantle of anti-science, according to one physicist.
4: It's our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Skeptic check. Science and the election.
7: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We're talking about why, when there's a public consensus that science and technology matter in our lives, why is it there's a lack of scientific discourse in this election? One reason, says Sean Otto, is that most members of the media covering politics are not schooled in science or simply turned off by it. So
4: important questions about policy decisions Go unasked. But in this election cycle, there may be other reasons, other than the media's allergic reaction for why science is being kept away from the podium. We'll hear later in the show how historical trends have contributed to bring us to this point from communications expert Kathleen Hall Jamieson. But physics professor Lawrence Krauss, also a member of ScienceDebate.org and an outspoken advocate of elevating science discussion, gives us another reason. This election is unusual, in case you hadn't noticed because one candidate is flat-out wrong about science and does not have the facts to discuss it meaningfully. It's a dramatic development, says Dr. Krauss, and he outlined his argument in two articles for The New Yorker this year, 20 Science Questions for Donald Trump and Trump's Anti-Science Campaign.
3: Lawrence, first an overview. How would you describe how literate about science the four presidential candidates are this election year? Let's begin with the four candidates. We'll look later at the two main candidates.
6: I do think that of the four, it's clear that Hillary Clinton has thought the most about science and science policy. Uh, the One is clearly the least knowledgeable about it is Donald Trump. But uh, the other two candidates have not talked a lot about issues related to science. Joe Stein, I think, made some silly comments regarding vaccinations. And as far as I know, the libertarian candidate has basically not talked that much about it, except to say, in general, government support of science is not high in their list.
3: So is this worse than previous presidential elections, you know, maybe a generation ago? I mean, is there something special about the situation today?
6: Yeah, there's something particularly special about the situation today, I think. It is worse. It's true that the candidates have never let science get in the way or facts get in the way of their politics for the most part. And science has often been ignored. Uh, And in fact, uh, until recently, the discussion of such things as climate change has been non-existent in presidential campaigns for the most part. But now it's worse because specifically because one of the candidates continually distorts everything, including all empirical facts related to science. Climate change is just one. And that is more worrisome because I tend to think of science as empirical evidence applied to public policy. And so it's not just areas related to support of fundamental research or issues related to climate change. It's not using empirical evidence as the basis of public policy. And and there's no doubt that Donald Trump has never let empirical evidence get in the way of anything.
3: Well, in fact, you wrote two pieces for the New Yorker and many others elsewhere, focusing on Trump's anti-science campaign, if you can call it that. You're really taking aim at him. Uh, and uh, his platform in particular, why why does it deserve such scrutiny?
6: Well, first of all, by the way, the, uh, I, I will say in my own defense that the New Yorker piece called Trump's anti-science campaign was actually an analysis of, of all the candidates. The one who was clearly the biggest anti-science was Trump, and that's why the editor named it that way. But I think the point is I'm taking aim at Trump because he asked for it. He, more than any candidate in recent history, uh, continues to distort the truth and in really important areas, not just in, in climate change, but in education and support of research and environmental protection. While it is true that the Republican platform in the past has already been generally more extreme than the candidates, in this case, Trump, as everyone has recognized, is a unique figure in American politics, is someone who has already said in his own mind that. Essentially, creative lying is okay, and we shouldn't stand for that, especially when it comes to fundamental issues such as education, health, defense, and everything that's really going to affect the quality of life in the next decade.
3: Well, Trump has said that climate change is something instigated. Uh, by the Chinese. Now, I'm trying to understand that. I mean, the Chinese do have a lot of coal. Maybe they'd like to sell <laughs> it to us or sell it somewhere. And I, I guess they could make uh, manufacturing more expensive in this country with this kind of a approach, But and that would be to their benefit, clearly. But is that what's really going on
6: here? Is it really— Well, well you know what? It, no, it isn't, because what's clear— and this is what I object to most. I mean, ignorance is one thing, but lying is another. And what's clear is Trump says what he needs to say, even when he knows better. And, and climate change is one example. Of course, he made that statement about it being a Chinese hoax to affect their competitiveness. But then when he owns uh, golf courses, they've applied to build retaining walls because of global warming and its consequences. So when it suits him for his businesses, as most business people, by the way, who depend on this, they recognize the realities of the world, same as the Defense Department. If you don't recognize the reality of the world, you're going to end up losing. So, on the one hand, when it comes to his own self-interest, he says one thing. When it comes to what he thinks appeals to a base of people, he says another. But then there are other times when when it amazed me that I, uh, my favorite, which I talked about in the New Yorker article, was when he said that he didn't quite understand why hair products had to have... uh, you know, aerosols removed because of the worries about the ozone layer, because he only used his hair products indoors. <laughs> and I thought that was that was an example of profound ignorance about how the world works.
3: You've uh, described such anti-science and, uh, if you will, ignorance of science statements by Donald Trump. But tell us what he said about vaccines, because I seem to recall during the primary campaign, he made some statements there.
6: Yeah, he made some statements about, in fact, anti-vaccine statements, and then he's gone on to moderate that. But then he says, no, but I still see examples of autism. You know, there's evidence that I keep hearing about it. He always says, I keep hearing about this or that as a way of potentially protecting himself because they're, they're random anonymous attributions, but they're not true.
3: <laughs> okay. And the statement here is to support the contention that vaccines cause autism, right? I mean, but that, that's been discredited.
6: That's been discredited. And it was a shame that, as I say, Jill Stein, I think, also brought up, it's been discredited in the extreme. And the sad thing is, once again, you know, you can just laugh at people who, who make mistakes, but this affects people's lives. There are kids all over the country who are not being vaccinated and they're getting ill and people around them are. It's it's it is child abuse to propagate these lies at the expense of the health of children.
3: Of course, he wasn't the only candidate during the primaries to make this kind of equivocal statement, right? Ben Carson, who, after all, is a medical
6: type, he said something similar. Well, he said much worse, much worse. The most scientifically illiterate candidate that I could see in that campaign was Ben Carson, which proves, I guess, you don't have to be a scientist to be a doctor. And what is really of some concern is Trump has said, you know what? When it comes to education, I might appoint Ben Carson to advise me on educational reform. This is a guy who believes in young earth, anti-evolution creationism, and Trump doesn't seem to be able to tell the difference. Uh,
3: Perhaps this is why Hillary has made a point of saying she believes in science. Uh, She has a long history of supporting science you've written. Is that right?
6: Well, yes, she has. In fact, her campaign was quite interested when science debate came up to her. and, And she's been interested, in fact, in the only candidate that really has expressed significant interest in potentially having a real physical debate on issues of science and technology. But isn't it amazing? I mean, what is really sad is that here in 2016, a candidate for president has to get up and say, I believe in science. I mean, it's like saying, I believe the sun is going to rise tomorrow. I mean, it shouldn't be news.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Although she did uh, say funny things about Aliens, or at least uh, Area 51, getting to the bottom of what's going on at Area 51, and maybe Roswell,
6: which is silly. But I guess you can claim if you're president, you'll you'll have access to all the secret information, and you can address even the uh, crazy conspiracy theories. And certainly, she's she's used to crazy conspiracy theories.
3: <laughs> Well, there's a perennial lament that neither the president nor the Congress has much knowledge of science. I mean, there are what 535 congressmen, and generally speaking, only one or two of those have been trained in science. There's, and, and there's
6: one, only one PhD scientist in Congress anymore. There used to be three, so we've gone down from three to one. And Bill Foster is facing a, a, a tough re-election campaign. PhD physicists used to be Rush Holt, who's now the head of the uh, American Association of Advancement of Science and Vernellers, who was a a, a Republican. So, you know, it's not always just the Democrats who had the scientists, but it's true, it's really amazing. And one of the interesting things is, if you look at legislators in different countries and compare the number of scientists and engineers in the American Congress with, say, the number of scientists and engineers in the Chinese government, and you compare lawyers in one versus lawyers in the others, you get the exact opposite. And it's really kind of remarkable that in other countries, the people who are making decisions about these issues actually have some background in them. Now, the question is why? I mean, it, why, why don't we get more scientists running for Congress? And the answer, I think, is that in some sense, in the current climate, you have to be willing to pander in a way that I think many scientists aren't willing to do.
3: Does this really hurt us, though, Lawrence? Or is it not really a problem? Because there are always experts brought in from the outside to advise on science policy.
6: Well, yeah, look, I don't care if the president or even a congressperson in general is a scientist. It'd be nice to have some representative aspect of the population in Congress. If the president chooses good people around them, that's what's really important. And that's, for me, one of the scariest things about Trump. When he said, who do I get advice from? I get advice from me. (laughs) I'm really smart. I don't need advice from other people. And that's the scary thing. So for me, a sign of a good leader is someone who surrounds himself with people who know more about issues than they do.
3: Lawrence Krauss, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you.
4: Lawrence Krauss is a professor of physics at Arizona State University and director of its Origins Project. He's also a member of ScienceDebate.org.
3: Okay, okay, we long for a substantive science debate, but maybe we should be careful what we wish for. Let's say we got our wish. The debate not only takes place, but it's at a high level, a high theoretical level. Who's to say that it wouldn't still succumb to the inevitable political shenanigans?
5: So I support creating an accurate map of the ocean floor. As you know, we have better maps of Mars.
4: Which I am on the record saying are not good enough, and why I voted for the Martian Map Improvement Act.
3: Thank you for your responses. Moving to another topic, theoretical physics. Senators, if elected president, would you support the launch of a high-energy telescope
5: to investigate the nature of black holes, Senator Clark? Thank you, Howard, for that question. Black holes, Howard, as we know, are the regions of space where gravity is so strong that light cannot escape and... That's debatable. I beg your pardon.
4: Research in Japan suggests that light... Can escape. Uh, Senator Higgins, please let Senator Clark finish. Technically, the question is not settled.
5: That Japan study on light was not replicated. Now, if elected, I would appoint a science task force to lead investigation into the warping of space-time.
4: Well, since Stephen Hawking himself now claims there are no black holes, investigating them, <laughs> well, you might as well use taxpayer money to build a cold fusion plant to power the lost city of Atlantis. This money is real... And it could go into string theory, folks.
5: Which you can't understand without studying black holes. Moving to another subject. You know, it's interesting that you say black holes don't exist, yet during your first term, you voted to increase funds for the investigation of gravitational waves, Senator. No, 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 I did not. Gravitational waves originating from black holes. No,
4: no. Those funds were restricted to gravitational waves from neutron stars only.
5: You were well aware of the origin of the waves, Senator. We know that the Senator reads the top physics journals. We've obtained copies of her subscription receipts.
4: (laughs) I only read them for the tables and graphs. Senators, please. And,
5: and she has attended at least two TED Talks on the subject of gravitational ways.
4: They were TEDx talks.
5: And on her Instagram page, you will find multiple selfies taken during her tour of the LIGO facility.
4: That was not LIGO. That was the Stanford Linear Accelerator. It's too dark to take selfies at LIGO. My people tell me that.
5: Oh, sure, Senator, sure.
4: The issue is taxpayer money being sucked into a black hole.
5: Oh, money better spent on eleven-dimensional waving strings, I suppose. I, I have to remind you, senators. <laughs> this measure
4: of success. Note the senator's proposal to fund reanimating extinct species. Now, look How here. The go? woolly
5: mammoth revival <laughs> bill was
4: very popular with the voters. Not with the funders. <laughs> Senator, oh, and like elephants. Senators, sure, but it wasn't viable. Against. Please stay behind, your behind your language. Language. We are not doing
3: well at including science and technology issues in our political debates in 2016. But were we any better in the past? Historian and professor of communication Kathleen Hall Jamison looks back
4: next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, skeptic
7: check, science, and the election from Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed,
3: We're hearing that when it comes to discussing science issues in this election, that candidates barely get a passing grade. Some outright fail. So why is that? Well, maybe we're holding the bar a little too high. After all, were we ever good at taking up such issues at election time? We've been asking why science is not on the podium during these debates, but was it ever?
4: Kathleen hall Jamison is professor of communication at the University of Pennsylvania and the director of the university's Annenberg Public Policy Center. She's authored or co-authored more than 16 books on the media and politics, and she is the co-founder in 2003 of factcheck.org, which has a separate page for science, scifact.org. And she outlines the political and cultural trends over the years that account for the exclusion of scientific issues in debates today.
3: Looking back on past elections and debates in particular, including our first televised presidential debate about a half century ago, Dr. Jameson also attacks the question, is the lack of science in debates this election season anything
1: new? Yes, in some ways it is. So if you go back to the 1960 campaign, remember, we'd had the launch of Sputnik. We are in the space race. And one of the issues that is being contested in the 60 presidential debates between Nixon and Kennedy is whether we are first in science or whether we've fallen behind in science. And at issue is a specific kind of science, that is space science. But the competitiveness issue is a foreign affairs issue in that context, and as a result, it gets more extended treatment in that debate.
4: What does it mean by extended treatment? We should look more closely at that, what that means. And I have to say, I did read over um, the transcript of that 1960 debate, and I was amused that Kennedy said that the development of rocket thrust was more important than that of color televisions. I'm not sure that that played well <laughs> with the public, but it was it was amazing to read a transcript where even basic um, rocketry was discussed. Well, and you have to go back into that time to realize how central in that we're in the
1: in the throes of the cold war how central the idea is that we may be falling behind in something that signals that in the Cold War, we may no longer have the superiority we always assumed we did. I mean, Sputnik was a kind of body blow to the US self-conception. And out of this discourse between Kennedy and Nixon, ultimately what we're going to get is the moonshot. And so the public is up to speed in this kind of discussion because space and the race in space is a more central part of the dialogue than it is now.
4: What was the discussion like? Was it a series of sound bites, catchy sound bites, like the one I just gave about rocket thrust versus color televisions, or was it sustained? Well, it was sustained in that you have multiple paragraphs that
1: you can attribute to it in the debates. Um, In the October 21st debate, for example, the distinction between the two candidates is an argument over who's first and who's second. And implicit in that is whether Soviet education is producing A level of science competitiveness that u.s education is not and so the reason that this dialogue is as deep and extended as it is is because it not only implicates defense and foreign affairs and our relationships with the competing worldview of the soviets but also the implication is we may have fallen behind educationally at the same time and you see a moment in the debate in which you actually have the head of the information service being cited about whether or not we are first in science and whether we're first in other areas of science, but not in space. Now, that's a sophisticated discussion because it says, well, we may be ahead in some places, but the one that really matters, we're not.
4: To what extent has a single scientific issue or a couple scientific issues uh, defined an election in the past? We just talked about the space race in the 1960s. Is there another example? The Because Al Gore had defined himself and was
1: arguing differently than other candidates. defined himself as an environmental candidate. The discussion about global warming is different in 2000 than it would be for another candidate. And you always have to remember when you see a debate treating a topic, there's a backdrop in that moment that the public is aware of that we may not be as aware of now as we go back and look at that moment. But in the October 11th, 2000 debate, they're discussing whether or not regulation is appropriate, and George W. Bush takes the position that, well, if it's scientifically feasible, it should be, but he segues into a global warming discussion. This is in the context of Gore talking about Earth and the Balance with his book, and ongoing identification with environmental scientific concerns, and what you have with George Bush saying is, Look, global warming needs to be taken very seriously. I take it very seriously, but science, there's a lot. There's differing opinions. And before we react, it's best to have a full accounting, a full understanding of what's taking place. And interestingly enough, 2000 is a long time ago. There are still those taking the George W. Bush position. Well, the science isn't quite yet settled out there and the divide is the same on ideological lines In 2000, as it is in 2016, more skepticism in
4: Republican ranks. Now, when we talk about um, the effect on a candidate of putting science to the fore in the case of Al Gore, didn't he suffer a kind of public backlash among some because he was seen as a nerdy, you know, egghead and it, it turned the public off? And one of the interesting things about the way we elect presidents is that we're simultaneously
1: casting a vote on the vision that the person is projecting, and that's based on issue positions and different philosophies of governance, and the person who is articulating those positions. And Gore was tagged throughout the election and successfully tagged by the Republicans in the general election as – thinking he was a little smarter than everybody else and exaggerating his contributions, interestingly enough, to science. Because remember, the serious attack in the advertising against Al Gore was that he exaggerated his role in the creation of the internet. Now, that could have been a discussion about how basic research was involved in creating the internet. Instead, it was an indictment of Gore for appearing, in one instance, take a little more credit than he deserved for his role in Generation of the Internet, although he did certainly play a role. He held the
4: early hearings. I want to go back to another debate. I know it's skipping back and forward and back again, but to the 1980 debate between Carter and Reagan. And when I looked over that transcript, there was a lot that was discussed, uh, Clean Water Act, Alternative Energy. Of course, Carter championed solar energy and environmental policy was an issue. In your opinion, were those discussions then in 1980, important and useful and and how did they play out with the voters? Well
1: one of the questions always is
4: when are we actually talking about science
1: and when aren't we? And when you're talking about the capacities to generate alternative forms of energy that discussion can be cast as the prowess of industry you know the capacities to develop new ways to explore but the focus can be on what business does, and not the science that lets business do it, not the breakthroughs that ultimately give us alternative forms of energy. And also, the effects of that energy on the planet can also be at issue or not. And what you see in that election is energy is a very serious issue. But remember the times. Remember those gas lines. Some people are old enough to remember those gas lines. This is actually in the context of a discussion of where we're getting our oil not how we're getting our oil. And the question is, can that debate reframe that as how we're getting our oil and how we actually become energy independent and what the role of science will be in doing that? The debate doesn't go to what the role of science might be in doing that. And when we look back now in the context of the fracking debate, you saw the fracking debate discussed during the primary election season this year. We also have very real questions that could be cast as science questions or could be cast as energy questions in the absence of science. And as we worry, for example, about the effects of fracking and the fracking technologies on earthquakes, on water, on what happens to the air, we are framing the energy extraction question as a science question. And there was a
4: lot of that in the primaries, although very seldom was the word science used in the discussion. Looking at history again, is there an example of a science question that could have been framed as a science question, not one of uh, energy policy or national security or national competitiveness? And what would that have looked like, even if it didn't happen? What might that have been? The closest that we come is John Kerry's objection
1: to George W. Bush's position on federal funding of embryonic stem cell research. That discussion has as its backdrop a social policy issue. But... It really is about the boundaries within which federal funding ought to occur in relationship to a basic science question. And Kerry is raising it in the context of suggesting that Bush on global warming and on stem cell research isn't on the side of science. And what we're seeing this year is actually a kind of echo of that rhetorical move, because When Hillary Clinton suggests in the first presidential general election debate of 2016 that Donald Trump suggested that global warming was a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese, what you have is the suggestion that she is for science, she says that, and that Trump is not. There's the hint of that in that Kerry Bush exchange. It's a pretty powerful charge to say, someone is not lining up with what science knows. But in the polarized environment that we're in right now, that charge is more common than it has ever been before in the history of our politics.
4: So it sounds like that polarization along partisan lines of pro versus anti-science is a fairly recent thing within the last 20 years, 10 years even? It's
1: within the last 10 years or so. You can see it incubating because it comes largely out of the debates over climate change but it percolates in other places in interesting ways. In the primaries this year, it actually percolated up in the form of a statement by then contender, not yet nominee Donald Trump, who suggested that he accepted the discredited notion that there may be an association between childhood vaccination and autism. That comes out of discredited research that it took too long for the scientific community to formally retract. But in that environment, what you see is the assumption that parts of the audience will be very comfortable with the idea that Donald Trump is not lining up with a consensus view of the science. The idea that someone would just casually make that kind of statement, say, 15 years ago is almost unthinkable. Can you imagine going back into the polio epidemic and hypothesizing a moment in which someone basically says, no, we shouldn't vaccinate against the scourge? No, you can't think that. There actually were complications initially, and the public just wrote it out. I mean, our nation's leaders stood up. They got vaccination. Well, now you actually have a presidential candidate who stood up and played into an anti-science assumption with part of an audience, not fearful of the consequences. That's different.
4: Well, Kathleen, it does raise the question of where the fuel is coming for any anti-science rhetoric. Is it coming from the public? Because these candidates probably would not be taking these positions unless they knew that it would play well with the electorate. And I wonder, can we say that the public today, compared with 20 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever you want to say, really is not interested in a sustained scientific debate or is in fact anti-science or at least a portion of it is anti-science. We can't say that the public is anti-science because
1: all of the indicators indicate very high trust in science overall. We can say that some areas of science have been politicized and the poster child for that is the climate science debate. And here I don't think you start with assumptions about the public. You start with assumptions about political elites who do not like the regulatory and tax assumptions associated with some solutions to the problem, and if they work from an assumption that a centralized solution is undesirable, and that would ordinarily be the Republican assumption about any move, start at the local level, try to fix it there before you ever move up, and that regulation is part of the solution, then what you're hitting are two key themes for conservatives that are problematic for them. And once that becomes a debate over science, but actually Seriously, under that, not about science, but about how we regulate and how we tax, we get opposition to science conflated with opposition to regulation and certain kinds of tax structures. Whenever I hear those debates, I wonder if we couldn't just settle the debate down by saying, let's ask whether we could talk about just whether there's a problem apart from how to solve it and then put all the available solutions on the table, not just some of the available solutions, can you grant that there's a problem based on what we see? I wonder if we could change the debate. In other words, I wonder if it's not really about doubting the science and more about not being happy with the ways in which the solutions are framed. Solutions that might suggest, for example, that you shouldn't be driving the kind of car you're driving. You're know, you contributing to a carbon footprint that's
4: harmful to the planet's survival, or at least our survival on the planet. Mm -hmm. So it's tied into values. Well, I wonder for a little bit of fun, if we were to go back, say, 100 years ago (laughs) to Teddy Roosevelt, something like that. Now, he came into office in 1901 after the assassination of McKinley, but he did have to run in 1904. Now, I'm just wondering, back then, would science or, for example, his environmental leanings have been part of the campaign? Would it played out in newspapers? Was science even anything that w- people would have been talking about a 100 years ago? When you can go back further than that. You can ask,
1: why was the National Academy of Sciences founded? And the Academy was founded because Abraham Lincoln and Congress needed the guidance of people who had specialized knowledge. And so we've had that very important custodian of knowledge in place since Lincoln's time. Once you get to the era in which you get the beginnings of what I call the breakthrough science that shaped our lives, you know, we begin to get electricity in our homes. Science figures out how to give us clean water, a huge revolution. We began to get automobiles. We suddenly got the mass media revolution. We have Teddy Roosevelt talking on radio, for example. Well, the backdrop of that is amazement at science, what this wonderful world is that's being created in science. Until we get the dropping of the atom bomb, there isn't a kind of sustained discussion that I know of about the dark side of the potentials of science and the need to ask serious questions about its use. So what was the dialogue during Roosevelt's time? I don't know enough about the specifics to say the speeches I've looked at aren't talking about science. (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, Kathleen, let's look briefly at what happens when the candidates do talk about science. You are one of the founders of factcheck.org, and a subset of that is SciCheck for science based claims. Well, the candidates may have debated more thoughtfully about science in the past, were their statements any more accurate? Are, are you finding that your fact-checkers are harder at work today than they might have been 20, 50 years ago? Well, we weren't fact-checking 20 or 50 years ago. Right, uh, but had they been? Had they been, the, the
1: 1960 election is largely a clean election. Um, that is, there are very few factual inaccuracies. The candidates actually back then accurately stated the other candidates' positions. They differed about their interpretation of data, but where there was data that that was in common in public domain, they didn't dispute it. And so the debate isn't about whether we are doing very well in science, it's whether we are one or two. And that's a matter of opinion based on which indicators that you're using. When you grant common data, you have a better discussion. We had a better discussion then than now. Yes, those debates were more accurate.
4: Kathleen Hall Jamieson, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Kathleen Hall Jamison is professor
3: of communication at the University of Pennsylvania and director of the university's Annenberg Public Policy Center. The author or co-author of more than a dozen books on politics and the media, she is the co-founder of factcheck.org, which has a separate page for science, scifact.org.
4: Well, to answer the question we posed at the start of the show, why are we not talking about science in the 2016 election?
3: Well, we've heard in the show a few ideas, and some of this is simply due to the media's general disinterest in science or maybe the aversion to the Al Gore smarty pants effect. From Kathleen Hall Jamieson, we heard the historical trends that brought us here. In 1960, the public was more aware of how science was important to our national interests, the space race. But then science became conflated with regulation and values around the time we began discussing climate change. So science issues became issues of economics, and that polarized and politicized it. Dr. Jamieson asked, could we possibly separate discussion of science from discussion of how to solve problems? That seems to me like a tall order.
4: Well, thank you to the people who, despite never being elected to do so, never miss out helping us produce this show. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a non-profit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including scanning the skies with its Allen Telescope Array. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
4: Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at Critical Thinking Skeptic Check. This episode, Science and the Election. And if you'd like to hear more Skeptic Check or other Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you really love all those political ads, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show.
7: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimburger Family Foundation. At the Trimburger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimburger.org.
2: Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more.